Our scripture today is from Ruth chapter 4, that's page 190 in your pew Bibles. Ruth 4, verses 9 through 17. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he went into her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's not often that you inflict on someone having to read Elimelech and Machlon and Chilion and all of these great Bible names there. When I was a high school teacher and I would have students who would act up once per year or so, um, I always had this strategy of I would write their names on the board and then if they acted up again that next year, I would, you know, put a check by their name. When they finally got three strikes, then they had to do a writing assignment. And I thought of writing assignments that might better them spiritually. You know, they could write out like John 3.16 multiple times and stuff. But the lesser angels of my nature always took over, and I would have them write out the genealogies from 1 Chronicles. And the beauty of it was that, you know, if you're doing John 3.16, you can go, well, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten. For God so loved the world. But when you're doing a genealogy, it's like, okay, so Adam begat Seth. Dang it. Adam... Seth, and so you can only do like one word at a time. It was fantastic. Um, so, you know, payback's tough. Um, it is great to be with you today. Um, it's always great to be back here and see familiar faces. My teaching schedule uh, in the evenings has prevented me from being here much on Wednesday nights lately, and I miss that. Um, but it's always uh, a delight whenever Jim calls or, or emails and says, hey, would you speak? Um, I immediately send back, yes, whatever it is, I'll work it out. It is great to be here. What we're going to do today is look at the book of Ruth, and Ruth is a familiar book. We all know the book of Ruth. I bet probably everyone here has someone named Ruth somewhere in their family. Um, I considered uh, had, very seriously, had we had a, um, a daughter instead of sons, that Ruth would have been the name that we would have given her, because I, I just love this book so much. And yet, as familiar as the book of Ruth can be to us, I wonder sometimes if we read it the right way. And the person that I'm not sure if we always read the right way is Naomi. 
Naomi is one of the most awful people in the Bible. She's terrible. And Boaz is one of the greatest characters in the Bible. And I don't think either one of them gets as much credit as they deserve. Either Naomi for being as bad as she is or Boaz for being as good as he is. And so I want to walk us through the four chapters of this book and see if I can't show, well, maybe how I feel about both of these characters here. It starts off in chapter 1 in this familiar story. There's a famine in the land. And when there's a famine in the land of Israel, they decide that they will head east and go over to the land of Moab. If there's a famine in Israel bad enough that you would go to Moab to try to find some help, it's a bad famine. Um, this is not the most fertile place in the world. My, uh, my son Elijah and I just returned back from a trip to Israel. And uh, the way that our flights worked out was we first flew from Jerusalem or Tel Aviv over to Amman, Jordan, and then from Jordan over to Paris and then back home. Well, when you fly from, you know, Jerusalem basically over to um, Amman, which is very close to where Moab would have been, suddenly all of the greenery disappears. There's this city that's there, but there's nothing green to be seen in the whole place. It is dry. Those of you who've been to Israel and have been down to the southern part, to the Negev there, that's what the whole country is like there. This was a severe famine if they decide to go over to Moab. When they go over there... Naomi with her husband, and then um, she has her two sons. They marry the sons whose names in Hebrew mean weak and sick. <laughs> Do exactly what their names would suggest. They die. Um, these couldn't possibly be their real names. These are names given to them in the story because that's what they do. They go over there. They promptly die, and the husband dies as well. So now we have just the three women. We have Naomi, and we have the two daughters, she decides that she'll go back to Israel. And it seems like at first that she's quite concerned for the daughters. In fact, she weeps over them, she blesses them, but she urges them to stay. She doesn't want them going with her when she goes back. Naomi said to her two daughters, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant you that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. But there's more than meets the eye here. It's not just that she wants the best for them. She does not want to be burdened when these two women, when she goes back. She kissed them and wept aloud. They said to her, we want to go back to you or with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? And then in verse 13, the real truth slips out. She says, no, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than it is for you. Now, I guess we can give her credit for having lost not only a husband, but also sons. But these are cold words of comfort when the words that you say to these two widows are, well, it's not so bad for you, it's worse for me. It's more bitter for me than it is for you. Although Naomi means pleasant, Naomi is not pleasant. Naomi's bitter. And she says, it's more bitter for me. I have more of a right to be upset than you do. You stay here. Now, Orpah will decide to stay there. 
But Ruth is not going to be dissuaded from following. And some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, you know these verses. You've heard these verses before at weddings and other occasions. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Oh my goodness. And you can imagine the response that Naomi will have to these words after she has just poured her heart out and said, let nothing but death separate the two of us. Her response is, not a word. She turns and walks, and Ruth has to follow. It says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She just starts walking, and Ruth can follow if she wants to. This is not a good passage for Naomi, and it's the best passage for Naomi in the entire book. It's going to get worse. When she returns, she tells the, uh, the townspeople that are gathered to get, uh, together there, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She wants her new nickname to be bitter. I, uh, speaking of teaching high school, I had uh, two sisters that I taught. One's name was Kara, and so they decided to rhyme the other one and name her Mara. Mara means bitter. This is not a good harbinger for, you know, this is like naming your kids Machlo and Achilion here. Don't do this. Um, who knows what could happen to them? Don't name them weak. Don't name them sick. And don't name them bitter. Um, but this is what Naomi wants to be called. And so, chapter 2. They have no food. They've moved back. They're landless. And it's very difficult in this day and age for um, women without husbands to really get into the economy and to find some way to make money. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, frankly, the Bible, at least in the Hebrew Bible, doesn't condemn prostitution as badly as we might think it would, is because a woman would only end up in this circumstance out of desperation. And so, it, you know, it's just one of those quirks of the Hebrew Bible that it, it's not that hard on that sort of prostitution. Cultic prostitution is something else. The women have almost no access to the economy. They don't have any food. And so Ruth offers to go out and do something. What she's going to go and do is she's going to go and follow behind some laborers who maybe will drop some grain as they're harvesting. And she'll see if maybe she can pick up some scraps. She tells her mother-in-law that that's what she'd like to do. And her mother-in-law says, that's a great idea. Go. This is something we wouldn't let our daughters do if we had a choice about it. It's easy to sort of cast this as some kind of idyllic scene of harvest that belongs on the front of a cereal box somewhere where we've got, you know, this beautiful... Where did it go? Did I leave my bulletin there? Um, that wonderful, beautiful scene that's on the front of the, the worship program there. This is not exactly what we ought to envision here. We are asking Ruth to go out and follow behind the roughnecks and rednecks of the day, to go and, and hang out with the cast of the deadliest catch and see if she can pick up a few scraps for herself. She's clearly a beautiful woman, as we'll see in a moment. What's going to happen to her when she's out there unprotected, hanging out there with the, the lowest peasants in society gathering the grain here? She is in a very dangerous spot. 
and could well have been taken advantage of if it weren't for one person. And that person is Boaz. When Boaz comes home from a trip, you just have to love the scene. It's one of my favorite little passages in the Bible. In verses 4 to 9, it says, Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of the harvesters, Whose young woman is that? The scene is, he arrives back, says, Hey, who's that? No sooner has he laid eyes on her and he is completely smitten by this Moabitess who is there. He, um, they, they gather her um, you know, in and she talks to Boaz and he says, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. See, this was an issue. It means not to harass you. It says, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink of water from the jars the men have filled. He tells his servants, hey, as you're, as you're going along, drop a few things here. So that he can lure her into staying here in the field. He is infatuated from the moment he lays eyes on her. How are you? Who's that? Make sure you leave some stuff so she doesn't go somewhere else. It's important not to let slip from our minds the difference in power between these two. Boaz is the lord of this manor. He could have said, I don't want to lose that extra grain that we're dropping here. You go back and pick that up and you tell, oh, what's her face to get out of here? He could have had his men manhandle her. He could have done anything he wanted to her. And he doesn't. When given the opportunity to take advantage of her, Boaz takes care of her instead. Almost the polar opposite of her own mother-in-law. Here she is out in the fields gathering grain. Chapter 3. Ruth is going to go home. And when she goes home, she has far more grain than she ever could have gathered on her own. In part because Boaz just gave her grain um, in hopes that she would come back. And when she goes home with all of this grain, Naomi is going to plot their next step. In Ruth chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Mm -hmm. Is not Boaz, whose servant girls with whom you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself. Put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. This may be awkward to talk about in church, but you cannot miss the overt sexual tension that's in this passage. Wash yourself. Put on your best dress. Hide out until he's had all a full meal and a little bit too much to drink. And when he lies down, go and lie down at his feet and he'll tell you what to do. We know what Naomi is telling Ruth to do in this passage. To add emphasis to it, the Hebrew word for feet is generally used in these kinds of contexts as a euphemism for a man's sexual uh, parts, for his genitalia. 
Um, in Isaiah 7.20, when it says that as an act of shame, you're going to be paraded out as captives with your head shaved and your feet shaved. Well, unless they have somehow conquered a band of hobbits, shaving their feet is not going to be such a humiliating thing. They're, they're talking about shaving something else and parading them in front of it. The thought of some Assyrian captor with a razor near your... <clears throat> feet is a terrifying thought in and of itself, but this is what they're talking about. Ruth is supposed to lie down and uncover something, and then he'll tell you what to do. It's overt in this passage. This is what Naomi tells her beautiful daughter-in-law to do. Imagine how vulnerable Ruth is in this scene. She goes and she lies down next to him. He could do anything he wants to her. He's the Lord of this manor. He's had a little bit too much to drink. This beautiful woman has come and offered herself to him right there while they're alone in this dark threshing floor. The sky's the limit. He could do anything that he wants. And yet Boaz does not take advantage of her. What manner of man is this? That he doesn't take advantage of her in that moment. Instead, he takes care of her. The text says that when he is awakened, um, it says rightly in the, the NIV, he turned, because she's beside him, not below him there. He turns and she's beside him. It says that Instead of doing something to her, he says, no, 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 I'll do what it takes to make you my wife. Boaz is a sterling man, an exceptional man. Instead of taking advantage of her, he takes care of her. And he goes through all of the steps, the steps that Randy read earlier about what it takes to go through and make her his wife. He's got, there's someone else who has claim to the land and the, the, who, who owns the land and, and who gets the wife is all tied together here. I can't begin to understand how things worked back then. But, you know, there's something like that. He takes care of every step and then makes his way all the way um, to the place where he marries Ruth. And that's where we're going to see perhaps the worst story in the whole book. It says in chapter 4, verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. It's wonderful. And then there's verse 16. Verse 16 has been paraphrased a little bit too much in the NIV. In the Hebrew it says, Then Naomi took the child and laid her in her bosom, and she became his nurse. Ruth has the son. And Naomi takes the child and puts the child in her bosom, and she becomes the child's nurse. And the women of the town say, a son has been born to Naomi. 
Naomi takes the child away from Ruth, and the child becomes Naomi's son. It's fascinating to me. In fact, I'll confess to you, I never heard this before until the scripture reading was being done in this very service, that when it says, may the Lord make your daughter-in-law like, it mentions two names. Do you remember the two names? Rachel and Leah. Because they were the ones who provided, you know, the children for Israel, for Jacob there. You know, that story is a lot more complicated than just Rachel and Leah. If you remember, this is the one where Jacob ends up marrying the wrong girl. He ends up marrying Leah because her father, Lavon, slipped her into the bridal bed that night. And so he marries Leah, and then he has to work another seven years to get Rachel there. So now he's married to two women, only one of whom he loves. And so, well, the way God kind of compensates for Leah not being loved is she's able to bear children. And so in rapid fashion, she produces four children, and Rachel can't. So you remember what Rachel does? She says, I've got my maidservant. You go and start having sex with her, and then she'll produce children, and they'll be my children. And so Jacob does. And when Leah sees that Bilhah is having children, he says, oh, no, no, you're going to have to start having children with my maidservant, and they'll be my children. How ironic that the two women with whom Ruth is compared here, it's going to be another story in which some people have the kids and somebody else gets to keep the kids. Here we have Naomi taking the child from Ruth. Ruth gives and gives and gives all the way to the end and she's given everything even her own son this is a sad story in some ways it's a devastating story it's a story though that I think has some lessons that apply for us even today I'll give you four the first lesson is this You will not always be able to avoid Naomi's. There is always going to be somebody out there that you know in your heart of hearts they have their interest at heart and not yours. There are always Naomi's out there, people who are going to try to take advantage of us. The second lesson is this. Live out your life as faithfully as you can, even when you're surrounded by Naomi's. I just, I, I marvel at Ruth. This quiet, determined service to her mother in law who's trying to take advantage of her. I won't leave you, let nothing but death separate us. I'll go and hang out with the harvesters to get food for us. I will go and offer myself to him so that he will take care of us. And we don't even hear a word of protest at the end when they say a son has been born to Naomi. Ruth is as faithful. She's just almost the embodiment of this this quiet sheep led to slaughter. And And he did not open his mouth to say a word. That kind of image of someone giving all that they have to care for somebody else. You will not always be able to avoid Naomi's. Live out your life as faithfully as you can, even when you are surrounded by Naomi's. Third, as much as possible, surround yourself with Boaz's. 
Psalm 1, which is one of my favorite psalms, says, Oh, the happinesses of the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of the scornful. It's just a fascinating psalm because of the way that it works. It says, oh, the happinesses of the person who, and it immediately begins to say, does not, does not, does not. No one defines happiness this way. We don't like being told no. This is a wise psalmist who says there are certain kinds of no's that you ought to install in your life. Chief among them, people who don't have your best interest at heart, To the degree that it lies in your power, cut them off. Oh, the happinesses that come from a person who decides, you don't have my best interest at heart. I will not live my life to please you. I often think of our experience in high school. It is this terrible part of our high school experience that we live our lives as high school students craving the approval of the people that in retrospect we know did not like us. I I don't understand why it's the case, but I mean, come on. I'm not the only person in here who did this. (laughs) When you look back at your high school years, can you not think of those two or three people that were a couple of notches higher on the cool ladder than you were? And just to get a smile or a laugh at a joke or an approval from them, it was like rays of sunshine beaming down on you. And in retrospect, you go, what a bunch of morons. Why was I trying to get approval from them? I don't even like them. And they didn't like me. We live our lives. I mean, isn't that what peer pressure is? It's craving the approval of somebody that you think is a notch above you. What a miserable way to live. The psalmist says, oh, the happinesses of the person who says to those people, sorry, you're out. Cuts them off. Is this not what we as parents, if we had the ability, would do with some of our children's friends? If there were, you know, the red button that you could just press and just nuke them right out of existence, that they'd just be gone. That, you know, if we could cut them off for them, we would do this. Because sometimes you see friends that they have and, and you're just delighted with it. But sometimes you can, you can see it in your eyes. You can see it in your hearts that a certain friend does not have their best interest at heart. And you'd do anything to just cut them off and say, I'll end it for you if you won't end it. And yet that never really works completely, does it? Oh, the happinesses that come from cutting those people off. And instead, cutting those people off, instead what we do is we search out those people who genuinely have our best interest at heart. That person that you know would go to the mat for you, who would do anything to care for you. You know who those people are. They're not always the cool people. But they're the people that you know that in a moment of desperation, if you picked up the phone, they would be there. As much as possible, try to push away the Naomi's, but you won't always be able to. So live out your life as faithfully as you can when you're surrounded by those Naomi's. And as much as possible, surround yourself with Boaz's instead of Naomi's. And then the last lesson. We may not... Always see God's justice now. But we know that our God of justice 
will always work out everything in the end. I, you know, I, I don't have time to go into this, but I'll tease you with it. The reason that we believe in the afterlife is because we believe that God is just. The reason that we believe in the afterlife is because we believe that God is just. Because we know that when we stand over the body at a funeral, we know that the scales of justice have not always been balanced. That there are some people who are genuinely wicked and they live long lives and die in peace. And there are people who are genuinely good and they die far too young. And we see that the scales of justice are not balanced in our own day. And we say a God of justice will not leave things like that. Will not the God who is the judge of all the earth do what is just, is what Abraham says. And so if he won't do it now, he'll do it then. There will be a time when God will balance every scale, when he will make all things right. We believe this. And it happens in the life of Ruth. You see, the book of Ruth ends on a quite tragic note where the son is taken away from her. The story of Ruth does not end on a tragic note. The story of Ruth ends on a quite different note. The book ends with the words, A son has been born to Naomi. But the way the story of Ruth ends is many, many centuries later, And many, many books later in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, we find a genealogy. And in this genealogy, we find these words. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. This is Matthew's genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. But if we look at the verses that precede this... We come just a few generations back and we read this. Oved was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. That's great for Oved. Oved becomes the grandfather of the great King David himself. But it's the line before that I love. Boaz was the father of Oved, and Ruth was his mother. Not Naomi, Ruth. When the genealogy of Jesus is listed, it's not Naomi who gets mentioned. It's Ruth. Naomi may have been the mother of him for a moment. Ruth is the mother of the son over the long term. And she's not just the mother of the son. She's the mother of the son. She's the one who gets mentioned. Ultimately, Ruth is the mother of this son. Ultimately, God does balance the scales. Ultimately, a God of justice will do what is just. Ultimately, Ruth is the one who shines through. We do not have in our Bibles, Joshua judges Naomi. And thanks be to God. We have in our Bibles, Joshua judges Ruth. God ends up balancing every scale. We just don't always get to see it. Be a Ruth. Endure your Naomi's. 
find your Boazes and cling to the God whom you know in time will make all things right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I, I feel so often that we are staring at the backside of some piece of embroidery that you're doing. And all we see are these messy leftover threads, threads that go from one side to the other. We can hardly get a glimpse of the picture that's on the other side. Father, I pray with all of my heart that you would give us glimpses of that other side and enough faith to hold on to know that one day we'll get to see the entire thing. Help us, Lord, to hold on to you in faith even when we don't see things going the way that we want to right now. We believe that you will make all things right. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.